When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, January 5th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, how's it going? We haven't really been doing anything, so I guess let's just dive right into what we've been reading, right? Um, I mentioned this uh, in a previous episode, a previous discussion with you. You were telling me about you were reading a, a book about editing from uh, Paul Hirsch, the, the guy who, who uh, edited uh, Star Wars and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I mentioned that I was I was currently reading a book called The Conversations uh, that was um, basically it's a series of conversations with Walter Murch, the editor who worked on uh, the movie The Conversation and uh, the Godfather films. And um, he's just like a, a legendary sort of towering figure in film history. And I finally finished this book uh, and it's it's very enjoyable. I'm curious to see how it compares to the one that you mentioned, which I also said that, that I own is sitting on my shelf and I just haven't read yet um, because this one is it's kind of like an oral history where it's just like literally transcriptions of like four or five different conversations that Merch had with the author of this book, whose name is uh, Michael Ondaatje, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who I think wrote The English Patient, which is another movie that that Merch edited. Um, so anyway, they, they have this sort of like back and forth throughout the movie or throughout the book where he sort of... Um, where uh, the author basically just like probes Merch and asks him questions about what his philosophy is about editing. And um, and they talk about not only editing, but like directing and uh, all sorts of aspects of filmmaking. So it's an enjoyable read, um, but there's a little bit of that thing that I don't like sometimes when um, uh, people who are like moderators at Q&A events, like kind of insert themselves into <laughs> the conversation a little bit. Um, so there will be moments in the book where the author is like, ah, oh, yes, when I was doing such and such. And it's like, I'm not here to learn or hear what you did. I, I want to learn from Walter Murch. I don't give a crap about what you did. Um, That's why but, I didn't you know. enjoy the uh, Goodfellas book, Made Men. The author kept mm. on doing that repeatedly. Yeah, it's not too bad. There's there's only a whiff of that in here, I'll, I'll say. So I don't want to make it seem like uh, it's it's all that, because certainly not. Um, but the book is called The Conversations, Walter Murch and the Art of Editing Film, if you want to check that out. Um, but Jacob, I know you've been doing some reading as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to do a book a week. Uh, you know, Let's see if I make it happen this time. I opened a Goodreads account and everything to track it. Uh, but I, started, I want to start off with something that was um, simple uh, and straightforward and easy to read. Uh, and it ended up being a book called The Big Show by Steve Pond. And this is a very outdated but fascinating and trashy book um, about the Academy Awards. It was written by Steve Pond. I believe he's now the awards editor at The Wrap. But in the 90s, he was the uh, awards writer and journalist for Premier Magazine. And every year, he was invited to go watch the Oscar preparation. He'd go sit in on as the Oscars producers and directors, you know, organize and plan the show, you know, schedule it out and planned all the various segments and, you know, try to wrangle up all the presenters. Then he would sit in during rehearsals and he would sit in backstage as the show happened. And he did this for 10 years and wrote a book uh, that breaks down 
the uh, development, rehearsal, and production process of the Oscars over the course of 10 years. Uh, the years he covers are from 1994, when Schindler's List won, all the way up to 2004, when Return of the King won. And each chapter is literally just you know, breaking down how that show came together. And it's a combination of really fascinating insight into live television and the choices that go into creating a show that big and how the Oscars is such a large, immovable object that every time a producer comes in and says, I want to change it up, they find themselves unable to do so. The show is always the same, even though they, so many people come to the show trying to do something different. Uh, but also, it's just full of juicy celebrity gossip. Just all kinds of both good and bad behavior happening behind the scenes uh, of the Academy Awards, <laughs> things in the stages in preparation. I'll say that uh, certain celebrities come off extremely well. Uh, Keanu Reeves, as you expect, is adorable in the few times he pops up as a presenter. Um, if you ever wanted to uh, be a fly on the wall as Keanu Reeves learns that David Letterman is not doing a good job in his rehearsals for hosting the Oscars, <laughs> you are in for a treat. Very uh, specific situation. Very specific. <laughs> also, uh, Barbara Streisand comes off as a as somebody who um, the Oscars never, ever want to deal with, ever. Uh, and it's if I was Barbara Streisand, I would have called my lawyers after this book came out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's learning fascinating. Like, I don't know, it made me really respect how much the Oscars, uh, how much work goes into even a bad show. Because goodness gracious, like, I guess the, uh, I'll, I'll share my favorite part, my favorite part, one of my favorite parts from the book. Yeah, if this amuses you, then you will um, want to pick this book up. It's out of print, but I think you find it pretty cheap. Uh, there's a moment in, in the Oscars where Martin Landau wins for Ed Wood. A best supporting actor in 1995 and he goes up there and does a speech and after 45 seconds they try to play him off and he shouts that no he's not going to get played off and the, the the book acknowledges that actors get more leeway the producers know to give the actors more time if, if um but martin landau then pulls out a list and starts reading names and the, and the, and the scene is in the is in the directing booth where the producer and the director and the camera operator so the people the camera controls are all sitting there realizing that Martin Landau is not only de- not refusing to be played off, but he's now reading from a list of names, which is the worst possible solution for a mm-hmm. for a award show. It's, it's, it's bad TV. It's boring. And after over two minutes, Martin Landau takes a deep breath to pause, and the producer just yells, he paused, play music, fuck him. And they, <laughs> rack, they rack up the music loudly enough that Martin Landau can't talk anymore. If that detail found amused you, then you should definitely read The Big Show by Steve Bond. Excellent. Yeah, that sounds really entertaining. Uh, okay, so let's get into what we've been watching, Jacob. What have you been watching recently? Uh, last night, I rewatched The Banshees of Inisherin, a movie that I saw at Fantastic Fest a few months ago. Uh, and it's been, you know, hanging around my brain ever since I wrote about it a little bit. And by the time you listen to this podcast, my top 10 of, of the year is probably going to be on Slash Film uh, Live, where it made my number two slot. And I still stand by that. It is um a movie that I feel uncomfortably close to uh ben did, did you see banshee's administration i did yes i don't think you and i have talked about it yet so maybe uh, we can bounce off me here yet but as somebody who's been who's tried to be open about my depression and how it's impacted my life uh the, the characters here the two characters the, the two feuding friends played by um colin farrell and brendan gleason it's all this is martin mcdonald's new movie for those of you who aren't aware of the guy did in bruges and three billboards um I felt uncomfortably attuned to both these characters in a way that leaves me uncomfortable now, even talking about it. Because I, cause I have very rarely seen uh, such vivid and accurate depictions of despair, uh, and in two very different ways. Mark uh, Colin, Colin Farrell's character is a guy who 
he's incre- he's such a nice person. He's but he's he feels completely alone and he feels bereft of friends and bereft of purpose and becomes increasingly aware of of just how isolated he is and how maybe kindness isn't isn't uh the solution to his happiness whereas Brendan Gleeson's character is engages in awful acts of self-destruction despite himself and others just uh for reasons that are intentionally vague and cloudy mm-hmm. and Ben, did you relate these characters the same way I did, or did you find them interesting at least? Yeah, I found them super interesting, and I, I think not. I, I I guess don't suffer from depression myself, but I, the thing I found super interesting about this was how like these two guys are kind of like, um, in my view, like two the two halves of Martin McDonough's brain, like the um, the warring notion of um, of creativity versus complacency, and like the sacrifices that that have to be made to live a creative life and like the um, the wake that you can leave behind you when you uh, commit to um, to doing something for yourself, you know, uh, and, and sort of how the, those effects like reverberate out um, through a, uh, a small community or whatever is sort of like the, the um, that, that was the real draw for me. And that, that's what I ended up taking away from it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's telling to me that my two favorite films of 2022, this and uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, are both movies about, about, a, per, about a personal apocalypses, about entire worlds being undone um, uh, through like emotional despair, except in Everything All at Once, it's across the entire universe, whereas here it's one small Irish island. And I, I don't know, I think those, those two have more in common than I think we can give them credit for. But um, this is yeah, not. I, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I, I fully agree with that. And I, I think I may have mentioned this like the first time that I saw it, that I wanted to talk about the ending of this movie in a little bit of detail. Um, so I think now enough time has passed. This movie's been out for a little while. So let's just say we're going to spoil the very, very end of The Banshees of Venice Sharon. So if you've not seen this movie, just skip ahead a few minutes. Um, but uh, Jacob, I had this theory when I was watching it that the very end of the film where Colin Farrell's character sets Brendan Gleeson's character's house on fire with him inside it, with, with Gleeson inside it, uh, it, it sort of, um, it has that image of him, you know, of, of Brendan Gleeson sort of looking forlorn and, and straight faced and um, just sitting inside there and the camera is in there with him and you see Colin Farrell out the window, like dropping, you know, logs of flame basically on the the house and then it cuts away and there's some narration and stuff and then the two characters meet up again on a beach and have like one final conversation and during that burning of the house sequence we never actually see brendan gleason's character leave the house but he knows that colin farrell is setting it on fire and he is just sitting in there and sort of like you know it, i think it speaks to that self-destructive streak that you were talking about earlier from that character He's like almost um, almost like punishing himself by just sitting in there while his his everything around him burns. And I was wondering if like there's a reading where I haven't watched the movie enough to really know, but I was wondering if there's a reading where like he actually dies there in, in that house. Like he he succumbs and like doesn't get out. And that final conversation between the two of them on the beach is Colin Farrell's way of uh of sort of reconciling the the actions that he's done. Um, th- since you just watched this last night, do you have these images fresh in your mind? Do you know what I'm talking about? And what do you make of that uh, I do. I, half-baked I, I, theory? I don't think it's half-baked. I think it's definitely something you can absolutely read, the idea that Gleason's character is going to haunt Colin Farrell's character for a foreseeable future. 
But for me, the idea that you see that how when the camera pans across his burnt house, there's a shattered window with a chair uh, through it. Clearly, that Buddy Gleason had thrown a window through a chair, which makes me think that this wasn't like a that's kind of a violent escape action. It's implied that he like made a very desperate escape. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't notice that. I think I just like simply did not clock that image. So that makes a lot of sense. The reason why it's important to me though, is that the idea that Brendan's character Colm is willing to self mutilate. He's willing to destroy what he loves in order to spite a friend to to, to make the the point that he wants to make. Uh, And even though, you know, uh, it's a very, it's it's a very, very extreme uh, representation of, of, of depression. And I'm somebody who has deliberately gone out of my way to like derail things I enjoy just to make myself more miserable. Um, that's something that I have done in the past as part of my mental illness. So I related to that as well. But I also know that even though I've had suicidal ideation in the past, at the end of the day, I have chosen not to kill myself because I, because I ultimately figure out there's a reason to keep living. And Brendan Gleeson being the kind of guy who let his house get burnt down, but the last second jumped through his own window to escape to me, it's a perfect capper on who, who exactly who that character is. So I think yeah. he's awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think my uh, my theory is is a much, much darker movie than what the actual ending uh, presents for that very reason. So, and and I'm not sure, like, as, as um, sort of, as much as Martin McDonough, like, loves uh, dark humor and things like that, I'm not sure if he'd be willing as a storyteller to go quite that far in, <laughs> in like, his worldview, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that imagery just sort of stuck with me, and I've, uh, I, I'll have to go back and rewatch and, and keep a close-out uh, look for that, uh, that broken window there. <laughs> um, okay, let's get into the next thing you've been watching, Jacob. What, what else have you been checking out? Have you seen The Ref, Ben, the 1994 dark comedy? Is this the one with... Um... Robert De Niro? Oh, it's uh, Dennis Leary and Kevin Spacey. Okay, I'm thinking of The Fan uh, yeah. with like Wesley Snipes and, and I think Wesley Snipes and, and Robert De Niro. Uh, no, I've never seen The Ref. I consider myself to be pretty well you know, read and knowledgeable about movies, especially ones made in my lifetime, even ones I have not seen. I feel like I've, I've seen the title or I've seen the VHS cover or seen the poster at some point. But I was not familiar at all with The Ref until I... Until I, um, until I met my wife and you know started going to her house for, for holidays and learned that The Ref is a movie that her family watches virtually every Christmas. And it's this extremely dark, R-rated Christmas comedy about a uh, thief, but with Dennis Leary, who, on the run from a home burglary, uh, hijacks a car uh, driven by uh, a bickering married couple played by Judy Davis and Kevin Spacey and takes them hostage in their own home. And it's about what happens as... Um, their problems become intermingled. Their, their marital issues become the same, become intermingled with his like attempt to run from the law. Now more and more people come up to the house for the holidays, and how it escalates into this incredibly dark, you know, morbid, um, bleak uh, situation where everybody, where where everybody sort of um, everybody starts swapping their own problems. It starts like the marital problems become the problems of Dennis Leary, and Kevin Spacey and Judy Davis's problems become become his problems, and it's just this. Um, very specific, strange little movie that was a box office bomb, um, but is definitely has a really strong Christmas vibe to it because it's very much about the holidays and very much about you know reconciling uh, in one way or another during the holidays. But you know, in a very bleak fashion. It's directed by Ted Demi, who um, who uh, you know he didn't make too many movies before he passed away. He died in two thousand two. Uh, what, what did he make beyond this? He um, he directed uh, this, um, the Eddie Murphy movie Life. Uh, beautiful girls, um, blow, just um, so it's one of those movies where I feel like 
I've been wondering, like, is this a movie that like other people know about? Is it a movie that like has like a really strong cult following, or is it just my wife's family who watches it? <laughs> I've certainly never heard of this movie, but I'm very curious if our listeners, if there's like a big uh, the ref hive out there. So write in at uh, Peter at Slashroom.com. Let us know if you if you're familiar with this movie, if it's part of your Christmas traditions as well. Yeah, I will, I will also the same holidays. We also watched Scrooge about the Christmas Carol. Scrooge is a movie I really like. Um, I think I think that some people elevated a little too high in, in their Christmas Carol movie rankings, but I do think that Bill Murray is probably my, my favorite Bill Murray performance in here. Just um, wow, like uh, of all time, of all Bill <laughs> Bill Murray performances, it's far from my favorite Bill Murray movie. But I think that it really does sum up the appeal of Bill Murray in, in a way, and uh, just the unbridled cynicism transforming into like anarchic, uncontrollable, almost violent joy in the climax with that. Famous, famous monologue that he has. I think is, I, I top three Murray for sure on a good day. You know, number one. I mean, are, are you a Scrooge fan? How do you feel about it these days? So I, I saw this movie when I was probably like twelve years old, right around the time that I was really getting into Bill Murray as a you know comedic persona, and I found this movie too, um, too sort of like nasty and mean spirited and and bleak when you compare it to things like Ghostbusters and Stripes and some of the other stuff that I was watching at that time. Uh, and I've never gone back and rewatched it just because I did not care for it at all when, you know, when I was in that sort of formative period. So uh, I don't know if that's necessarily still a, a valid thing or how I would, how I would still feel about it. But um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do know that people seem to talk about this movie a lot and just like internally, I've, I'm, I've always just sort of rolled my eyes and been like, ah, yeah, I can't. I can't hang with that movie, but um, maybe it is it's worth a revisit. I will say, um, did you ever see um, the FX miniseries adaptation of A Christmas Carol with Guy Pierce from a few years ago? No, I didn't. I remember the trailers, but I never watched it. Uh, what's unique about it? I'm not saying you should watch it. It's like most people hate it. I really like it. And the reason I like it is that when Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, he was writing it, you know, from from uh, from a, a time in London. When kids worked in factories and died of horrible deaths and homeless rate was through the roof and people were starving and suffering and just truly horrendous, horrible times where, like, no social safety net at all. And A Christmas Carol, it's been, its edges have been sanded off in so many ways by pop culture um, to the point where we look at it, oh, yeah, the, the mean man becomes nice because of Christmas. When Dickens was writing it as, no, um... This is a chance for like somebody who's evil to stare into their own soul and come to a, a reckoning of uh, a, a, of like can I be better? Can I be a better person? And he uses a Christmas ghost story as a backdrop of that. I think Dickens was letting his readers at the time fill in the gaps for how horrible of a person Scrooge would have, would have been uh, and how truly deplorable those times were because he didn't need to fill in the gaps. The, the modern readers knew that, and I think that those edges got lost in a lot of adaptations where it just becomes. Christmas saves this guy instead of a moral reckoning of a dark soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Scrooge and the FX adaptation of Christmas Carol, which is just a straight up horror movie. It's a straight up nasty, evil, dark, twisted thing that uh, where Scrooge is responsible for, for, for hundreds of deaths because he doesn't, doesn't pay for safety measures in the workhouses that he funds. So it's um, a bad piece of work. <laughs> I, think that, I think similarly that uh, Scrooge is one of the few um, adaptations that really has that edge that I think Dickens sort of implied in his original works. Even though I like the movie Holy Works, I like that it has the 
it really goes for the social commentary that I think most versions skip by default. Am I making sense here, Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And and I've I've seen you know several adaptations of it, and um, I. I I think this coming year, 2023, is the year that I'm finally actually going to read A Christmas Carol, which I've never done before. And I'm, I'm curious to get that full context that you mentioned about, like, the, I guess, book Scrooge versus uh, the movie versions and stuff. So um, I guess before we go any further, Jacob, let's take a quick break and then we will be right back. Okay, so you also had uh, Muppet Christmas Carol on your list here. You mentioned it briefly. Did you have anything uh, specifically you wanted to say about it? That, the movie's about it great. This time? I watch it every year. Like it's one. Of the, it's probably the only movie I watch literally every year without fail. And you know, like I said, is it the most accurate adaptation of Christmas Carol? No. Uh, does it use tons and tons of Dickens's original writing uh, narrated by Gonzo? Yes, it does. Uh, it's Michael Caine, my favorite Scrooge, because I. All right, here's my thing about Scrooge. It's a character. This is why I hate the Robert Zemeckis, uh, Jim Carrey version of Scrooge, is that when done improperly, um, three ghosts show up and scare Scrooge straight. They scare him and, and, say, if, and say, if you don't, if you don't uh, change up, you're going to hell. And mm-hmm. Scrooge is like, I'm afraid of hell. I'm going to become a good person to avoid hell. And that, to me, is a cop-out. Um, to me, uh, what Michael Caine does in his performance here, and in, in the friggin' Muppet movie, is you really depict a guy who's not afraid of the ghosts as much as the ghosts awaken a genuine sense of self-discovery uh within him uh michael michael Caine plays scrooge is a, is a guy who chooses to want to be better to better himself and because he see he finally sees what damage he's done to himself and to his community mm-hmm. and scrooge cannot become a good person because he doesn't want to go to hell scrooge become a good person because he wants to make the world a better place and michael Caine plays that um and i don't think i, I think that most versions just play him as a guy who essentially went for a supernatural ride along and <laughs> got scared straight. Yeah. Wow. I've never thought about it in that context before, but that really does draw a distinct line or, or really like a circle around Michael Caine's performance because I'm, I'm racking my brain with other adaptations that I've seen and ones that I love too, like Mickey's Christmas Carol, which I think I've talked about on this podcast before in previous years is my favorite adaptation. Um, but that definitely has that sort of scared straight, uh, approach to it. And I just rewatched Muppet Christmas Carol, I think for only the second time in my entire life, Jacob, this was not mo- a movie that was really in my rotation growing up. Um, but my wife and I watched it this year uh, on Disney plus and it was, it's great. I, I really like it a lot. I think we're definitely going to add it to the list of things that we check out every year. Um, but, uh, and I don't know why I just like never really, it's one of those things where like the VHS wasn't in our house or whatever it was, um, whatever the circumstances were, but yeah, man, that's a that's a really really great way of um, of sort of separating Michael Caine's uh, uh, portrayal of this character. Yeah, great performance. And finally, um, I, I, how much we talk about Babylon on the podcast? Yeah, should I talk about Babylon a little bit? Yeah, talk about Babylon. Yeah, uh, people seem to really love or hate Babylon like to extreme degrees, and I, I I'm in the love camp. Um, I love the Damien Chazelle cashed in all of his poker chips to make this three-hour gonzo classic Hollywood extravaganza that's essentially Singing in the Rain by way of Animaniacs, by way of Boogie Nights. And it is unreal how this film just jumps between tones and jumps between being so tragic and so funny and so bizarre. This movie is a real roller coaster, not like in the cliched sense of it's, it's a thrill ride, but in the, in the sense of it's rattling you around. You don't know what's going to happen next. And I, I appreciate the big swing. I think the closest thing I think of is Cloud Atlas uh, in terms of another movie that made a, a movie made for a similar cost that 
take such a big, ambitious, creative swing. Um, I will say, as, as somebody who has read so many books about silent film and classic Hollywood, seeing the exaggerated versions of silent filmmaking in the early part of the movie and the exaggerated version of them trying to make sound films, even though they are, you know, heightened, are accurate enough to like, I to, like really excite me to like. I, I was I was thrilled to see like those production processes, you know, brought to life in, in, in any way in a major <laughs> Hollywood movie. Uh, also, no spoilers since the movie's still relatively fresh, but um, when we do our best moments of the year podcast, you know, in the very, very near future, I'll be talking about Tobey Maguire's cameo. Yes. One of the most <laughs> deeply bizarre things I've ever seen in a studio film. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, what a great section of the movie. I know that uh, I've, I've heard from people that, like, um, that's where the movie sort of takes a turn for them. Um, but I was I was really like fully on board for pretty much this whole this whole thing. This is like such a uh, zany feels like um, like a childish word kind of. But like this is kind of a zany movie. Like the the pacing is truly like out of this world, and it it uh, like flings you around the city of Los Angeles like a like a pinball or something. You're just like. There's no um, time for you to take your breath, except for the very, very end of the movie where he makes this big, grand statement, um, which, again, we won't really spoil. But um, maybe like in a future episode, we can talk about uh, that final uh, little bit, Jacob, that that big sort of like almost like you could call it a set piece moment um, at the end of the movie and what we think that means. So, um, yeah, if you have not seen Babylon yet, definitely check it out. It's on my list of favorite movies of the year. Um, and as divisive as it is, I, I really think there's a, there's a lot to uh, to love about that. So, yeah, I decided Babylon was, was a perfect number eleven on my top ten list. It barely didn't make it, but um, I, I I think that we should be if Damien Damien Chazelle has, for me it's a four for four. I think that Whiplash, La La Land, First Man, and Babylon are all a filmmaker who I am prepared to follow for as long as he wants to keep making things because I, I get the impression that he he and I are very interested in, in some of the same subjects, space travel, movies, except for jazz. Strangely, he he's, he's obsessed <laughs> with jazz and I'm not, but I'll, I'll let it slide. All right, so uh, let's get into what I've been watching. I watched a film uh, that has one of the most bizarre premises that I have ever encountered, Jacob. It's called You Never Can Tell. It's from 1951. Have you ever heard of this movie? Does this ring any bells at all? I have not. Okay, so I saw the I, I follow the Criterion Channel uh, Twitter account. I, I subscribe to the Criterion Channel. Try to watch stuff on there whenever I can. I subscribe or I follow that Twitter account, and it retweeted somebody saying something along the lines of like, "I cannot believe this movie exists." And I was like, "Hmm, I'm intrigued. What is this?" So I'll, I'll just review the the synopsis from the Criterion Channel's website, Jacob. So it's only like two sentences, three sentences. After his eccentric millionaire owner bequeaths his vast fortune to his beloved German shepherd, it looks like the pooch, King, is one seriously lucky dog. But after King is poisoned in a plot to steal the inheritance, he makes a deal in doggy heaven to return to Earth as Private Eye Rex Shepherd, played by Dick Powell, and with the help of a reincarnated racehorse, played by Joyce Holden, he has to solve his own murder. Yes, really, is is what it actually says on the Criterion Channel description. Uh, so it is, my wife and I were racking our brains trying to come up with examples of this. We've seen it the other way a bunch of times where um, uh, human characters will, you know, be playing animals for some reason, you know, will we'll like transmogrify or whatever the word is to uh, where their soul enters the body of an animal. Um, but it's so rare to start a movie 
where a dog is the character is like the the main character and then the dog's uh mind persona soul whatever you want to call it transfers the other way into a human character for the whole movie and and like dick powell is is playing this character this private investigator version of of this dog as like a um i want to say dick powell played uh sam spade the um the famous detective played by Humphrey Bogart in uh, the Maltese Falcon. He played that same Sam Spade character in other movies, like sort of straightforward, like Raymond Chandler adaptations kind of thing. And so he's, it's very much like a tongue in cheek performance where he's like doing the whole like noir detective kind of thing, but he's also like literally snacking on bits of kibble, like while he's walking around because he's a dog in a human body. It's not April 1st. Why are you making this movie up? (laughs) I know it really does sound uh, wild. It's also only like 78 minutes or something. Um, so this was really, really enjoyable. It's um, there's like a couple little, um, you know, visual effects moments from, from the early fifties that I was kind of sort of impressed by given the time period that this came out. Uh, and there's some really, really funny stuff in here. It's a super silly movie, but if you're looking for something to, uh, to make you laugh and it's not like too much of a time commitment, I think you never can tell which is streaming on the Criterion channel right now is, uh, is very, a very entertaining way to spend an evening. So, um, I also watched Matilda, the musical on Netflix. Have you seen this Jacob? No, I, I thought it looked unbearable, but I've heard some good things. Yeah. I, um, I, I read, I think I feel like I read Matilda when I was, you know, nine or 10 or something. And it was not a book that was really in my rotation growing up as a kid. I really loved the movie. The, the, I want to say it was like 94, 95, the one with, um, Danny DeVito directed. Uh, that was a really great movie that I, I did spend a ton of time watching in childhood. But then, I, like you, I saw the trailer for this and was kind of like, I don't know, Matilda singing, uh, Emma Thompson sort of wearing a bunch of prosthetics, playing the trunch bowl. I'm not sure if this is going to be for me. But it ended up on a bunch of uh, slash film folks, like favorite movies of the year list like there hannah shaw williams reviewed it for us and she really loved it and there were people in, in our sort of circles talking really fondly about this movie so i was like i guess i'll check it out i've heard it's very good and lashana lynch plays miss honey and she's having a killer year she was also in uh no time to die i guess that was last year but she was also in uh, the woman king which was which was in 2022 um and uh, I was I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll check this out. And I found this to be like an incredible experience. Like, I think it's really, really good. The music is is very good for the most part. Um, the, the biggest surprise I had was that uh, as much as I sort of cringe when I see child actors, that's just a thing that like, broadly speaking, I don't appreciate. There are so many child actors that are like raised in the the Disney uh, model where they're just like playing to the cheap seats at all times and like, you know, overtly cheesy that I just sort of, I, I can't really, um, I, I don't really hang well with, with movies that like focus on child actors. Um, but every single kid actor in this was a really, really great uh, fit for their part. I thought there weren't any um, weak links in the chain. I thought the storytelling was really great. The adaptation was great. The sort of um, changes that they made and like the, the way that they, um, uh, altered and deepened the emotional core of the story I thought worked really well. I actually cried at one point in this movie. I was, I was not expecting that at all when I clicked play on this. So um, I regret not seeing this before I did my top 10. 
Yeah, it's it's really really good, and I, I I'm not sure if like any specific moment jumps out to me as much as like just the totality of the achievement of the thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a recommendation, this is it for me. Give I'm I'm giving it to you right now. Like, go check this out. It's definitely worth your time. So that's Matilda the Musical, and it's streaming on Netflix right now. And then lastly, I caught up with 1974's Freebie and the Bean. Jacob, have you seen this movie by any chance? This is one of those movies, Ben, where I've heard the title a thousand times, but I can't tell you a thing about it. Yeah, so I've also heard the title a thousand times for probably the past, as long as I've been on Twitter, really. I, I remember like the early nascent stages of film Twitter uh, hyping this movie and talking about how great it is. And I, it's been on my list forever. And it finally came on Turner Classic Movies, and I DVR'd it and, and watched it uh, this morning, actually. And it stars James Caan and a young Alan Arkin as uh, a, a pair of San Francisco cops who basically the, the idea is like they are trying to take down this criminal and uh, they learn that there's a hit that is put out on the criminal's life and they have to protect him um, from, you know, assassins basically uh, for, for the weekend. They have to like wait until Monday because something's going to happen on Monday where they're going to be able to actually like make their case against this guy formally, but they have to keep him alive for long enough for, uh, for that to actually happen. And, um, the movie is very much of its time. Like it is, it is a product product of its time in good ways and bad ways. The bad ways being like the characters, especially James Caan, this is like a, a sort of muscular, uh, 19, mid 1970s movies. So like he uses racial slurs and things like that, that, you know, reasonable people absolutely would not use today. Right. So that's one of the, the sort of uh, downsides to this. The, the great reason that it's a product of its time is because in this pre CG era, the destruction that happens in this movie, and there is a lot of destruction is real. And if you can tell that it's real and it feels dangerous in a way that so many movies today absolutely do not. I don't know if that's necessarily great, like, uh, um, you know, an ideal uh, set to be on if you're an extra in this movie. It looks like there were several extras here who had no idea that a movie was being made and they came within an inch of their life, uh, within an an inch of losing their life. Like, there are some uh, chase sequences here, both on foot and in giant metal cars and on motorcycles that are among some of the, the most entertaining chase sequences I've ever seen in any movie. And it's because, for, okay, so so like something like Fast Nine, right? I obviously I love the Fast and Furious franchise. I love these movies so much, but you can tell with the big chase sequences in those movies that they are planned out, to, you know, um, to the nth degree. They are they are uh, the most safe thing because it's so the pressure is so high. Everything is is you know it's it's modern Hollywood. Like these people don't don't leave anything to chance. Everything has been previsd or like um practiced out and you can tell that like they show featurettes all the time of you know uh cars that are being blown up um over and over and over again with no one even remotely there so they can get their trajectories right and all that stuff to make it as safe as possible right this movie just feels like the complete opposite of that where like it is chaotic cars are smashing into other cars and it just feels dangerous like really really um electric kind of stuff like in a way where you feel um, thrilled by it, but also kind of bad about it at the same time. Like there's, there's a little bit of complexity there of like, man, I, is this, is this worth it? Uh, Because it really looks like 
there are people who um, <laughs> who sort of like took it on the chin in these moments that maybe uh, didn't even know that they were involved in, in making a movie. And maybe that's just like really, really great um, stunt work, hidden stunt work by extras or something. Um, but the movie just has this sort of um, this patina of it that where it just feels real and grounded. And maybe some of that is just like the 70s, you know, the mid 70s uh, filmmaking. But this really is like that dirty, hairy era of you know, cop characters doing whatever the hell they want, just beating the shit out of guys mercilessly to get information. And like, they're, they're like, check your morals at the door kind of, this, that's what this movie is like. Um, but it's incredibly entertaining. So, and the, and the performances are really, really good too. James Conn and, and Alan Arkin are like um, electric together. It really is like a, a precursor to uh, the, the 80s where you, I always think of the 80s as being the decade that launched the buddy cop um archetype and formula right like movies like uh, lethal weapon and stuff i feel like that movie specifically has gotten so much credit for you know shane black basically like invented a whole genre here but if you watch freebie and the bean you'll see that you know it's, it's a little bit more um more nascent a little bit uh grungier but that that vibe um and that sort of um archetypical structure or whatever is is right there in in this movie and there's some really really incredible action in this so uh yeah high high recommend especially for people like you jacob um if anybody out there wants to check it out you can rent it on like amazon and apple and youtube and all that stuff for like three dollars if you want to check it out so yeah i'm checking this out asfp this sounds (laughs) wild yeah, it's great. Good stuff. So that's called Freebie and the Bean. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of the show. You can find more about a lot of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashhelm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.